Well, Talking Church, it is great to have Preston Sprinkle back with us. Last time he was here in Minnesota in person, but he has a new book coming out and we wanted to chat with him about it. And he wasn't planning to be in Minneapolis anytime soon, but maybe, who knows, maybe we'll have him back. Uh, But welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, it's great to be back, man. Yeah, I wish I was there in person, but uh, this I guess this will do. Yeah, it's the time to come. Um, I mean, Idaho for you, is it's beautiful summers. I've actually never been to Idaho, which is, mm. I've been to like 42 states, and Idaho is one of the few I haven't been to. Not not too many people have been here. It, it's a, it is a beautiful state. It's got a, a good chunk of it's extremely ugly, very deserty, mm-hmm. like if you've driven through Nevada or something, but um, the upper third upper two-thirds is all beautiful mountains and everything so we're right in between the mountains and the desert so yeah my brother-in-law yeah. said the most beautiful drives ever done was like northern idaho and so i'm yeah excited oh, yeah. to go yeah it's gorgeous um yeah, yeah. It, it's funny you, you've kind of been a little bit of a lightning rod for us i'm not sure if you're aware of that but um when you were here last <laughs> we had all this feedback and i guess you're probably used to this right you, you talk about some of it in your book but there's all these people that i think have ideas about you that aren't true um that i i'm like i literally sat down with him and talked with him for a long time and what you're telling me about him is not true of what he believes or doesn't believe and so hopefully some of that we can talk about today but it's just interesting even the other day someone commented yeah the pastor's son logan chatted with preston sprinkle and all these things i'm like well i'm about to talk to him again so uh welcome back (laughs) Uh, well yeah thanks for the introduction uh yeah i did not i didn't i yeah that's not uncommon to hear that so i'm not shocked by it i I didn't know any specifics about yeah Um, and and i I do get that a lot i think there's even if i google my name i'm like who are they talking about like i don't believe that never even thought that but yeah i I was listening to a podcast where jk rowling was talking about this harry potter um community and she created an anonymous account to go into these yeah. these chats and she was actually clarifying like things about Dumbledore and things about other things that people were saying you're totally wrong get out of here like you're out of line like, you have no idea she's the author but people were totally I remember I, I listened to the same podcast I so remember resonating with that I'm like I I I totally get that that's so funny um yeah. well your new book uh it it, it it's coming out here pretty soon here in August, I believe. Um, August 1st, yeah. Yeah, so it comes out very short time. At the time this release, about a week uh, a week from now. Um, mm-hmm. But y- you kind of took a step back, which is interesting to me. And you, you, were, you wrote people to be loved. And, and I don't mean step back like quality-wise, but yeah. in terms of in the culture war, you kind of went back to 2015. And you wrote about embodied, and there's a lot going on right now, of course. And I mean, every everywhere you go, every conversation we have in church seems to be bringing up some sort of school board thing or book banning or um, drag queens yeah. type thing that that is very much in the culture war. And now you're coming out with this new book that is about, you know, does the Bible support same-sex marriage? It seems like so 2015, mm-hmm. Preston. Why why <laughs> do you need to have this conversation now? And how does it kind of differ from people to be loved? Because I read that. Yeah, you know what's funny is your your description is almost word for word what somebody else just said on another podcast I was on. <laughs> I, wow, uh, Ju- Julie Julie Slattery. I don't know if you know Julie. She uh-huh. said the same. Like, it seems like you're going back to kind of the beginning of. of We're all wondering. So it, 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 yeah, yeah. So I, I that is one way to look, an accurate way of looking at it. I mean, in some ways, questions around sexuality are kind of not as pressing to day as they are compared to like maybe trans related gender questions. Um, 
although it's still, there's still questions around sexuality are still always very present. So yeah, so I would say this book, well, I wrote my first book on sexuality, People to Be Loved, it t- came out in 2015, which kicked up a lot of dust, right? Um, and uh, and everywhere I go and speak, you know, we do Q and A's, and I get questions from people. What about this? What about that? Like, I know you said this, but have you heard this argument and this? And how did you how would you respond to this counter argument? So this book is kind of like a response to a lot of the dust that was kicked up from my People to Be Loved book in 2015, specifically theological or relational questions um, or arguments for same-sex marriage. And so what I want to do is it, it is more of a an accessible resource for people that are being faced with a lot of people challenging traditional view of marriage. And some, some of these arguments are, you know, they're, they're, they're common and popular, like love is love, you know, but others are a little more complex. Like, you know, the word homosexual wasn't it was added to the Bible in 1946. And so modern translators are kind of making a lot of stuff up. What do you say about that? You know, and a lot of people are like, I, I don't know how to respond to that. So this book is trying to guide people into how to have a profitable conversation around a lot of these theological uh, disagreements. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and going through it, I have some of those conversations, that one specifically to kind of talk a little bit about. And of course you unpack it more in your book, but I hopefully in this short time that people are listening, they can get something out of this and then maybe grab mm-hmm. the book yeah. and to get to know more. But w- one of the things you say on page 18 in the introduction, you say sometimes how we believe is just as important as mm-hmm. what we believe. And I think it, at times that phrase can sound a little bit like a, a good saying, but in practice it's, well, no, the yeah. truth is the truth. And it doesn't matter how we believe. Is it, did the disciples care? Should we care? Can you talk about what you've learned? Yeah. You're a scholar. You care. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, and and the, so the, the, I would say, maybe one of my most unique contributions in in the book is the first chapter where I talk about how to have a profitable conversation. And I think in our polarized society, I think the church is kind of absorbing a lot of that polarization, political polarization, theological polarization, and I think people don't often they don't know to have how to have healthy fruitful conversations across disagreements, whether it's a fellow brother or sister in Christ, whether it's a loved one who may not be a Christian or whatever. Um, and I think this conversation has gotten that. So even though maybe some of the, it may seem like a step backwards, I think we, I think we've gone backwards because we've gotten worse and worse and worse about how to have a, you know, um, a, a profitable conversation. So, and yeah, I mean, this is something that psychologists that deal with, relationships and so on, or marriage therapists, like this is, all this stuff is kind of a no brainer with, you know, in that field, um, you know, a marriage counselors, if, if you're having a marriage dispute, they're going to tell you, well, make sure you really listen to what the other person is saying, you know, don't, don't overreact and be curious about what they're saying. Um, maybe find points of agreement, you know, your spouse said something that really upset you and is there something that they said that you can take away from it? So there's these principles that we've known for years and other avenues that, that I think should apply to conversations around contentious issues. Um, not, not because we shouldn't have convictions, but if we want somebody to actually consider our viewpoint, then we might have to give the impression that we're genuinely considering their viewpoint. Um, or, or something like, you know, you've worked with youth. I mean, you kind of are 
are you Gen Z? No, you're millennial. Um, I'm right on the border. I'm, you know, I'm 96. So some, I, I was okay, with okay. a guy who's for sure Gen Z. He goes, you're such a millennial. I'm like, wow, I've never felt older <laughs> in my life. <laughs> Yeah. So I'm, I'm a Gen Xer that sometimes thinks like a boomer. Okay. So like when, in, in my early theological journey, I loved loud, angry preaching that was physically pounding the pulpit. And the louder they yelled at me, the more I was like, oh, this is so good. I love you. You know, that just doesn't work with younger people. The more you yell at them, the le- the less they want to believe you, you know? So even holding your viewpoints with a little more humility, a little, little more even like open-handedness, like, hey, I could be wrong, but here's where I'm at now. Like that kind of posture that my generation and boomers, older, they just don't know how to do. That's like, you're being weak. No, you you know, just yell at them and, and they'll believe it. And like that doesn't work, you know? So even helping uh, Christians have a little more humility um, and um, in how they hold their beliefs. So anyway, all that to say, you ask, you know, um, you know, didn't the biblical writers and disciples and then just preach the truth? Yeah, they were bold with the truth. But they also, if you pay attention to Paul in particular, he, and this is well known in scholarship, that he drew on the rhetorical devices of his day. How he approached the Galatians was very different than how he approached Philemon. Philemon, he was very trying to lead Philemon to see the right perspective. Like he didn't come right out. It's one of the only letters where he didn't say, look, I'm an apostle and I have this authority. You just need to accept Onesimus back. And here's, if you don't, you're in sin and I'm going to come and beat you with a rod. You know, he did that with the Corinthians. He did that with the Galatians. Um, But with Philemon, he took a very different approach. He was drawing on different rhetorical devices. So all, all that to say, I think drawing on kind of the knowledge that we have in you know, on how to go about having profitable conversations, I think we do have biblical uh, precedents for that. So, yeah. sorry, that's a long. I'll, I'll be shorter in my response. No, that's a long response. No, that's great. <laughs> I, I mean, that's we're, we're obviously here to hear from you. And I, I mean, you mentioned Galatians. I just preached on Galatians a couple weeks ago, and I think it's mm-hmm. it's interesting and evident that in Galatians, he's pretty critical of the people of God who are resisting and saying you're 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 resisting. You're not welcoming other people. You're you're being too inward focused. You're not you're not seeing the fruit of this in the way you love others. And I think one of the things I've appreciated about talking to you and getting to know you over the last couple of years is even if we disagree on something, and it goes back to your point, if we can't have this conversation here, then how does the world expect to be received when their their beliefs are so different? You and I would agree on probably most of the things, but there's certainly things that we wouldn't. And if we sure. can't be cordial, if we're the the enemy of the church, then what does the world think about the, them? They're going to think of, of yeah. course, it, the Christians can't even get along. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good point. That's a good point. And, and yeah, we we live again in such a polarized society that it's 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 people just don't know how to get along across disagreement. I think the church has a wide open lane to model uh, what love looks like across, you know disagreements. And when I say disagreements, I don't, I'm not talking like, we're. yeah, I, th- I think there's a place where churches can, can break ties with somebody if they're you know, disagreeing on fundamentals of the faith, you know, for sure. You know, there's a place for that. But even then you can disagree with somebody on fundamental issues and still be, humanize them. Right. I, I'm not, I, so this is chapter 20 in the book. You know, I, I asked, I addressed a question is the question of same sex marriage. Is this just like an agree to disagree issue? Some people believe this, others believe that. Ah, it's kind of a toss-up. These passages are complicated. You know, it's just an agree-to-disagree issue. And I, I, I answer no. I don't think it is. Um, I, I think there's 
a, a good deal of, of biblical clarity on the question of marriage. Um, and I think that that I, the fact that marriage is between a man and a woman is a very significant part of the storyline of Scripture. It's woven into the fabric of Genesis 1 and 2, the fundamental foundation for, 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 for a Christian worldview, Genesis 1 and 2. It's, it's, it's all throughout Scripture as a sign of God's love for us. And, and so, yeah, I, I think this is a very significant um, issue. And if somebody does not hold to traditional marriage, I think that's a, that's a very significant theological departure from Orthodox Christianity. So I can say that, and that sounds very strong, but I can also, it doesn't mean I'm yelling and screaming and dehumanizing somebody else or like saying, how could, you're so stupid for believing, how could you have your head so far, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I don't need to do that. I can just point out like, no, here's just factually why I think your viewpoint is 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 a departure from, from a sound reading of scripture. But I'll, I can also maybe appreciate that everybody is at a different place in their theological journey too. Maybe somebody is just, you know, um, maybe they will get to believe in a traditional view of marriage, but maybe they're so fresh, freshly converted, they, they might need some space to kind of work through that. So I think, I, you know, again, a, a more gracious, humanizing approach that is firmly committed to uh, biblical, you know, biblical views on whatever it is. I, I think balancing that is, is super important. As you developed friendships throughout the scholarship space or even the space in talking about uh, issues related to sexuality. I mean, looking at some of your endorsements, N.T. Wright mm-hmm. endorsed your book, Jackie Hill Perry, Dan Kimball, who has a great book about how not to read the Bible. Yeah. Um, how, yeah. how have you incorporated some of those relationships to even in, in maybe this book or just some of your works from 2015 to yeah. you've now met a lot of people from that has that yeah. changed your mind or do you think it's it like I, you know sometimes we get into this sense of like oh we're just a part of the same culture and it's this echo chamber hmm yeah you know yeah that's a good question i'm not sure i have a quick and easy response i i i do i do try to resist the echo chamber um i think it's healthy to be around people with different viewpoints now, now the names you mentioned i mean N.T. Wright and Jackie Hill. I mean, we, we would line up almost across the board on, on, I would say almost everything in this conversation. And, um, but I, yeah, I've tried to get to know people who have different opinions. Maybe it's a minor disagreements or less significant disagreements within this conversation. Like should people call themselves gay or just same sex attraction? And, and, you know, I think some of those are, you know, these are, and I think these can be kind of agreed to, to disagree uh, questions, um, but the fundamental question about you know what what is what is marriage I think is significant. But um, yeah, I've, I've tried in in my in my journey of figuring out what I believe, what I think the Bible teaches, and in you know responding to different arguments, I always want to make sure I'm best representing the argument that I'm disagreeing with. You know. Um, as I, I think I say in the book, you know, we need to understand something before we refute it. And this is where, again, especially in this conversation, I think a lot of Christians, maybe it's out of fear, maybe it's insecurity, but they, I don't think they really take a lot of time to try to understand a certain argument, to try to get inside of why would somebody use this argument? Why would somebody say, you know, well, love is love, so we should affirm same-sex marriage. And rather than just, ah, just reacting, let, let's try to understand where, where's somebody coming at with that, you know? Um, because if we just react, 
that they're going to react and back and forth or walls go up. And it's like, well, do you really want somebody to consider your viewpoint? If so, we need to go about this in a way that's maybe more, more gracious. Doesn't mean you're not convicted. Doesn't mean you don't hold to biblical truth. It means you believe in that biblical truth and you want somebody else to believe it, that you take a more humanizing approach to helping somebody maybe see uh, the truth of, of God's word. So, um, what was, uh, let me, uh, I'm not sure. No, that, that, what was your question again? I want to make sure. It, it was I, more <laughs> just how, how you related it to meeting other people. Oh, right. but Yeah. Yes. Oh yeah. So, so all that to say, I, 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 by meeting other people, it helps you to humanize their viewpoint right. so that if, and when you refute it, you're doing so in a way that you are not misrepresenting what they're, what they're saying. Do you think some of the challenge that people are feeling is due to the constant or or maybe rapid is a better word, rapid changing of language, right? When when maybe someone's trying to understand what even the term gay means, of course, when you go back a while ago, that was happy. It was used in language quite frequently. And then now even gay is outdated a little bit to where there's a lot of other things. I mean, even older people or even people my age going, I don't even know what some of this stuff means. And so that that exhaustion, I think, at times is maybe yeah. what just has people go, I'm not trying to seek to understand because last time I tried to seek to understand, it mm. it's changed on me. That's a great point. And yeah, I, I resonate with that. I get that. And um, even though I'm a huge advocate for really trying to use language well and understand language, yeah, on, on, a, on kind of a societal level, language is in this conversation keeps changing, keep new identities or, you know, keep getting added new things. I would say when I say try to understand before you refuse, I guess I'm thinking more on the, the individual level. Like, like when you're in a one-to-one, one-on-one conversation, parent, your, your kid comes home and they say, well, I don't believe in this traditional marriage thing. Like try to understand why they they are saying that and truly you know take time to understand that so yeah I, I don't think every Christian should keep up on the you know daily changes in this conversation I, I think certain you know the higher up in, in leadership you are like for me I yeah I, I kind of have to people look to me to kind of know what these changes are and everything but I don't think the average Christian needs to to do that I think the higher up you are in leadership with people coming to you for discipleship in this conversation I think it it's more important to stay up stay up to speed on stuff but um, yeah, that can be overwhelming. And, and you know, things – nothing's really monolithic in this conversation too. Like, yeah, some people still use the word gay. Some say queer. Some don't like – you know, some people still use the word homosexual or whatever. You know, this, there is no kind of one-size-fits-all language. So, again, I think – I want to always bring it back to an individual. Level. Who is this individual that you're conversing with, dialoguing with? What, what are – where are they coming from? And try to understand that. Yeah. I want to talk about some of the conversations. You have over 20 different ones, points that maybe mm-hmm. people would bring up to someone. And as many pastors, church leaders, faithful Christians that are listening to this, and maybe there's others that say, hey, I clicked on this and I don't agree. That We're excited about that too. But the, the purpose of this to resource some of those questions and conversations that, like you mentioned, maybe are being brought up and people feel ill-equipped to answer some of those questions. Mm-hmm. I wrote down just a few, and I know we won't be able to get to all of them. But number yeah. four, you, you write, Paul was not talking about consensual same-sex relationships. That's often mm-hmm. something that we hear is, well, that was about you know ch- children and total abuse mm-hmm. and pedophilia or other things right. that were really common in the Roman world. Um, my dad, he was in 
Turkey and they shared at one of the churches, there was a, a home next door and they had found this like shopping list of, of sorts that on there said, make sure to pick up a prostitute for one of our guests, because that would be like our gift to them, our housewarming gift. So of course it's, it's rampant at this time to where there's all sorts of sin, but many people say it's not about monogamous, right. same sex relationships. Talk about that. Right. Yeah, great, great, great. That's a great one to start with. Very common. If if somebody listening is like, "Oh, I've not heard this before," just know this is a very. It's it's not just stuck in the halls of academia. It's something that a lot of common people uh, uh, use. So um, yeah, and so the argument goes again. We want to understand. It says, um, you know, since consensual adults, same sex relationships didn't exist in in the first century. Whatever uh, Paul, in particular, uh, whatever Paul was referring to when he prohibited same-sex sexual relationships, it couldn't have been the kind of consensual, committed same-sex relationships that uh, certain Christians are arguing for today. Um, it's an it's a it's a powerful argument because if that's true, there's something there. We need to understand the Bible in its historical context. We don't want to rip Paul out of the first century and make him into a first cent- 21st century American, you know, like we, we do need to understand what is Paul actually saying in his context. Um, so, and this is what I try to do the book. I try to show some kind of, is there anything in this argument that we can kind of maybe agree with or say, that's a good point, you know, like to show that we are having a good faith. We're not just trying to refute at all costs. We're actually trying to say, well, let's, let's understand this, this argument. And if, if, if it's not a good argument, let's, let's find, you know, areas of where we can refute it. Um, so in my refutation of, of the argument, first of all, um, it's, it's actually historically inaccurate to say that all kinds of same-sex relationships in the ancient world were all non-consensual. Older men, younger boys, masters raping their male slaves. Like th- those were widespread for sure. Um, and anyone who doubts that, it just hasn't read the literature. That those were widespread among male same-sex relationships. But we do have evidence of, of especially among women, um, adult, consensual, same-sex sexual relationships. If you look at the historical evidence honestly and thoroughly, you just see a lot of diversity in the, na- the kinds of same-sex relationships that existed. So that's, that would be my first point. And secondly, if I want to go to the actual language that Paul uses. Is there any evidence in the words of the actual New Testament that shows that Paul is thinking only of older men, younger boys, or masters and slaves, or prostitution. Well, there's words that were around that refer to older men having sex with younger boys. Paul doesn't use any of those words. Um, he doesn't use the words, you know, rape or slavery or anything. Like, the language he actually uses shows a high degree of mutuality. You know, they burned in passion for one another. I don't, I don't and again, I don't want to get too graphic here, but if a, if a master is raping his male slave, you wouldn't describe that as they're burning with passion for one another. Right. Um, they received in themselves the due penalty for their, plural, error. Paul uses general categories of men with men, women with women. He doesn't, there's nothing in, say, Romans 1 that um, is even age-specific, older men, younger boy, or, or somebody of a high status, lower status. Like, he don't, again, those categories existed in the ancient world. Paul doesn't use any of any of those. In fact, he goes back to uh, the creation account and kind of is drawing on language of creation, seeming to say that this is a departure from creation. Um, 
a male male or female female sexual relationship. So so that it, it, what's interesting, Logan, is that argument. It was pretty popular among academics in like the eighties and nineties, and they don't in academia. It's not as popular anymore because it's, scholars have kind of looked and like, yeah, this argument doesn't really work, but it does still exist on on a popular level, quite, quite extensively, um, actually. Have you, you said you've had people bring this up? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I think it's yeah. typically when it's brought up for me, and there's probably pastors and church leaders that are listening that would nod their heads. More often, it's about a family member or a friend. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, we have many yeah. people in our church that would identify on a lot of different parts of. The spectrum, and of course, we're trying to like most churches. I would say really try to love people while still preaching. I mean, it's the grace and truth paradox yeah. that we're all yeah. trying to to manage. That of course Jesus was the only yeah. one to do perfectly. Um, but it's typically the 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 more I'd say the more questions that come are from family members or close friends from people who are they feel comfortable yeah. enough because I mean you could probably attest to this. Most people in our churches. I mean, if they would, if they're living a lifestyle that they think could be contrary to the church that they're attending, they're probably going to research. They're probably going to ask other people before they would just go straight up to the pastor and ask them. And so, more what we've noticed is most people who are even attending our church have an idea of our view, and they're trying to figure out how extensive that view is, how far does that apply. But the questions that I get is, you know, well, my my sister, she loves her, you know, lesbian partner, and they're they're just they're so in love, and they're it, it's it seems so so they seem so happy, and why would you want to yeah. take that from them? That's typically in this type yeah. of question is what what I get. Yeah, no, that's that's good, man. That's good. And those those are hard to. I would say it's easy to kind of refute that on an intellectual level. Right. Right. Right, like I can eat. I mean, it, most people listening can like pretty easily say, "Well, here's why we don't do ethics that way." Just because someone's happy doesn't determine, you know. Like, and you can use examples of other people that are extremely happy doing all kinds of simple things, and you know. You know. Um, but this is where I want to caution people. This is where I talk about in the first chapter of the book. Like, make sure you don't just rush to refute the argument without first getting getting into the heart behind it. Because oftentimes, even some of the intellectual arguments, the theological arguments, are are kind of rooted in a deeper relational concern, you know? Um, and, and I really want to get to the heart of it. I don't want to just shoot out fire from hitting the flames. I want to get to, to the heart of it, what's what's going on. So, um, which again, it goes back to why it's important to ha- learn how to have a better conversation because you might discover something driving these arguments that, that you didn't realize if you just attacked them with their viewpoint. So, um, yeah. Um, I You know, I... I um, I just talked to somebody about this the other day. Like, like a lot of times, one of the fundamental questions that isn't even really kind of brought up, but it's underlined so much of this maybe disagreement is, do we believe the Bible is our ultimate authority to determine which sexual relationships are approved of by our creator? <laughs> right. Because at the end of the day, I think if you don't hold firmly to that perspective – then what's the point in arguing about matters of sexuality, you know? Um, so I think sometimes, if you, again, if you have a helpful conversation, you can get to where that's really the core issue, that if the Bible says something that goes against what we want to be there, maybe goes against what we think will make us happy or whatever, we're going to choose our happiness over what the Bible says. And here I'm just, I'm, this is across the board, straight, gay, whatever this is, you know. Um, 
And so that I think a lot of times taking it back to let, let's have that conversation. Let's do we actually believe that that the creator has the joyful authority to determine the boundaries on sexual expression, that he has revealed that plan, that design through scripture. Can can we agree on on that? So you, you mentioned mm-hmm. this earlier in the the podcast, but the word homosexual was added to the Bible in nineteen forty six. That's one that yeah. I would say is not brought up as common at, you know, on the Sunday morning, right, where people right. come forward, but it is more of that intellectual argument. And I think whenever a pastor hears it, they feel, uh, okay, I, I don't know the answer to that. And they kind of feel like they're caught flat-footed. Can you talk about yeah. that a little bit and maybe how yeah. that conversation and, and there's go? There's a whole documentary called 1946, the movie that's on this question. And and there's, um, there's certain people that are really... Um, promoting this, this argument pretty aggressively. So I, I, I see it pop up like on social media all the time. Um, yeah, it's not, when I get a show of hands, you know, in, in a big room, you know, who's heard of this argument? I, I st- it's still less than half for sure. Um, but I, I get it. It's, I, th- I think it's a, a growing in popularity. So yeah, the argument says that um, the word homosexual in English translations didn't, wasn't in any translation until the 1946 RSV version the revised standard version and they put it in and there's a whole, I have not looked into this, but there's a whole backstory on how, why they put this word in there and everything. And the argument says, this is just an inaccurate translation that has produced a lot of damage. Um, and, uh, I, so my initial response is I agree that the term homosexual is a poor English translation of, uh, the main passage is 1 Corinthians 6, 9, where it says, um, neither the adulterers are sexually immoral, nor greedy, nor, and some translations say, homosexuals will inherit the kingdom of God. Where where this can, can be really damaging is, what does it mean to be a homosexual? Um, well, let's ask, what does it mean to be a heterosexual? A heterosexual is you're, just, you're attracted to the opposite sex. Does being heterosexual mean you are having sex? Well, no. Just because someone says they're, he- if I said I'm heterosexual, that doesn't say anything about my sex life. And, you know, just says my attraction. So this is where, are we, are we wanting to say that all people who are attracted to the same sex will not inherit the kingdom of God? What about somebody who is, has unwanted same-sex attraction, but, out of allegiance to Jesus. They don't think it's right to act on this attraction. And so they're committed to a life of celibacy out of allegiance to Jesus. In 2023, when the whole world and decent portions of the church and everywhere is saying, you be you, you deserve a partner, you know, and they still, based on their reading of scripture, say out of allegiance to Christ, I'm going to live a life of celibacy. If that person doesn't inherit the kingdom of God, then I'm worried about myself. I'm worried about you worried about me because that's a that's a bold act of faithfulness so all that to say that term homosexual as a translation that that that's not a good term which raises the question well what is the greek word and how should we translate it? the greek word is uh uh it's only used here and and also in first timothy 1 9 um and the word I, I explained this in the book means a man who is having sex with another male could be a boy that you know that's common in that day it could be a s- same age like there's no age specificity here 
Um, but it's talking about somebody engaging in ongoing sexual behavior that's outside of God's will. That person will not inherit the kingdom of God. So all that to say, so far, I'm in full agreement with the argument. When the argument says, you know, points all this stuff out and says, therefore, the Bible doesn't prohibit same-sex sexual relationships or the Bible affirms same-sex marriage. It's that therefore that I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. You, there's many different ways you can talk about marriage and same-sex sexual relationships without using the term homosexual or homosexuality. So I think it, at the end of the day, it just makes a logical leap from something accurate, but draws way too wide of conclusions about what the Bible says about same-sex marriage at, in the end. I think anytime we use therefore to deduct mm -hmm. a response from scripture that is um, not pointing to other scriptures to validate it, right? That's not pointing to yeah. a a congruence of the canon, a congruence of both Old Testament. And I mean, Jesus did, he said, I didn't come to abolish this. And people talk about, well, look at Jesus talks about love. And um, mm -hmm. I was actually talking with a, a, a Mormon girl and she was saying, well, Jesus actually talks about eternal marriage through this verse in Matthew. And she read the verse to me. I said, well, but you do know about the, that Jesus was asked very directly about this question. And then you know, the, the story of the woman who married the brothers and then at the end, who's, who's he married to in heaven? And she had never heard that before because she was basing her theology off of this one mm. verse that could insinuate that he was meaning that. But then when you realize that actually there's other parts, I think that goes to Dan Kimball's book, right? How not to read the mm. Bible, how not to take the, the one passage and whether it's Leviticus or Corinthians, you also shouldn't do that on the, the offensive as well to say, mm. God does talk about love. God does talk about care. And I think that's why this topic is so difficult and why I appreciate yeah. the way you've approached it. And although we can't find someone who does it perfectly, who's on earth today, I do think we should yeah. be trying to approach in that way. And it seems to be that that's been your pursuit in the books that I've read from you. And even in reading this one, it's I'm I'm trying to 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 carry the truth with the message of fruit that's also evident in the New Testament. Right. Yeah. 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 That, that you know, you you mentioned earlier. You some people, you know, the fact that I try to be maybe try to be more humble, maybe more kind toward people I might disagree with, and and try to humanize the other person, try to understand like this whole approach could be interpreted as, well, you're just kind of soft on sin, or this is like you're light on theology, you're, you're, you're on a slippery slope, or you're kind of closeted liberal because I'm like, well, make no doubt about it. My natural personality is the bold and yelling and winning argument. Like that's, that's how I'm, well, I have no problem, you know, bashing somebody on social media. Like that feels good to me. Like I, you know, but I'm like, well, what? but is that a Christian approach? So I, it's for, it's not because I'm trying to shoehorn people in the kingdom or make a hard truth more palatable that I'm kind. It's because the kindness of God leads to repentance. It's because I see Jesus interacting with, especially people marginalized by religion of his day. It's for theological reasons, not just emotional reasons, theological reasons why I think integrating kindness in the boldness we should have towards the truth, why it's, why it's essential to do, to do both, you know. I, I think that could set people free who maybe have struggled with that. It's for theological reasons, right? I think to your point, maybe people feel, again, whether it's the, the liberal perspective of we, we want to be compassionate and open and tolerant. It, no, it's, mm -hmm. it's a biblical view 
that we want to approach it that way. Don't approach it because some politician said it. Don't approach it that way because, exactly. you know, your neighbor down the road said you're too hard on LGBTQ people. Don't do it because of them. Do it because right. of what Scripture says. And, of course, we're all going to interpret that differently and handle that differently and preach at our churches differently. But it should be, you know, we talked about this last time when you were on, but it, it should be a a point where you're trying hard not to make people hate Jesus, right? And and we know how right. amazing he is, but just because we disagree doesn't mean we should make people look like, I mean, we make Jesus look bad a lot, right? Um, because we're imperfect. Yeah. Um, right, right. A, a couple yeah. more points here before we, we wrap up, and I don't want to give the whole book away. I mean, uh, of course, <laughs> want people to read it and get it coming out in, in, in August. Um, but we mentioned the... The twentieth, you kind of expanded upon this already. Why not just agree to disagree? Um, yeah. Maybe even expanding beyond just same-sex marriage. You know, I know that's what the book is about, but there's other yeah. topics, uh, you know, related to this where maybe you're not um, participating in uh, homosexual sex, or you're not changing your identity uh, chemically or physically, but you would still identify as something different. Again, there's no action related to it, but I think there's probably a lot of nuance and perspective here that maybe Christians would would disagree on that maybe you can shed some light on, on how you've processed it. And again, it doesn't even mean we agree on it, but how have you processed people who yeah. maybe would identify as something that is not the normative, you know, or traditional view, but they're not necessarily partaking in sexual acts mm-hmm. that are sinful. Are you talking more like with uh, gender identities? Or, yeah, like you, like the term or queer or others like that? that people would okay. say. Yeah. I identify that way, but but I'm not going to act on it. And and but I but I definitely okay. do not identify with my biological sex or my biological sexuality. Yeah, man. Okay, you're going to open up that can. <laughs> so <laughs> with the final clear, few with minutes this, <laughs> with this book, I only and I make it really clear. I, I'm only talking about LGB. I'm only talking okay. about sexuality. Um, not the gender conversation. I've you know have another book on on the gender conversation. I think sometimes Christians they they kind of conflate the two. Right. Like it's shocking when I tell people LGBT is not a synonym for being gay. Like if someone told you they're trans, they told you nothing about who they're sexually attracted to. They, some are straight, some are gay, some are bisexual. You know, so really want to keep those conversations separate. But your your question does apply to both. Um, but let let me let me focus more on the sexual identity piece. Um, I think he, like if somebody identifies as gay or queer, so they would still resonate with their biological sex. I mean, to be gay means to be same sex attracted. Like right. It's a fundamentally a biological category. Um, and I, you know, I, I, it, this, this is a complicated part of the conversation and I wouldn't have thought it was complicated if I didn't talk to a lot of people about <laughs> gay people who are gay, who some, use the term to describe themselves. Um, some don't use the term. Some use the term in, in the kind of a capital G, capital A, capital Y, like I am gay and that's the main thing that you need to know about me. Other people, they might refer to themselves as gay maybe once a month or something. Like it's just not, it's, it's it maybe as often as I might say I'm an American, you know, which hopefully my Americanism shouldn't be my fundamental identity. Or I might say I'm straight. Hopefully that's not my fundamental, you know, like, um, I am a male created in God's image. I'm a human being, and, and ultimately, I'm in Christ. Like that is the primary identity that everything else flows from. 
Does that mean if I say I'm a writer, that I'm I'm an author, I'm a husband, um, I'm I'm deaf in one ear. I'm, I'm actually deaf in one ear. Um, these aren't fundamental identities. They have various significance in my life, you know. Um, so if, if I said I am deaf in my left ear, that I am statement isn't making a profound, it's like this is a fundamental identity. The fact that I can't hear out one ear, it's it's kind of shaped my life. Like it's something that it, like every second of every day it kind of like is – there, you know, like, and it can be significant when I'm in a loud room and somebody's trying to talk in my left ear and I can't, you know, um, so I, I want people to appreciate, first of all, some of the complexities of so-called sexual identities. Not every identity period has the same power that we might think it does. Again, I don't know that somebody says they're gay I can have two different people. One says they're gay. Another person says they're gay. They might mean extremely different things by that. One could be a sold-out Christian who also happens to be same-sex attracted, who for whatever reason finds the term gay, you know, the best term to describe that. Somebody else, again, might say they're gay and their whole world revolves around their gayness. Um, Very two different, same word, very two different perspectives. But I don't know that difference unless I really get to know. So what do you mean by that term? You get to know the person or why do you prefer this term and so on. So um, at the very least, so at the very least, let's, let's appreciate the complexity. Um, not everybody means the same thing when they say I am whatever. The gender identities do get, um, those get more complicated because if, if a female says I am male, that is, that's factually untrue. If a person says I am gay, we may not like that term or I shouldn't use that term, but that is true. They are same sex attracted. Okay. The gender identities, but now, now you're, you're using statements that are disagreeing with just fundamental aspects of reality. So long story. Okay. That's long story long, actually, because that took a while, but, um, but here's my, here's my relational advice. Number one, appreciate the complexity. Number two, really get to know each individual and what they mean by these terms. And number three, um, I would not lead with relationally lead with trying to correct somebody's identity. Even if it is some of the ones that are like, that's just factually wrong. If you lead with that, I think you're going to, um, probably turn off, just end that relationship immediately. So if you do actually genuinely want this person to come to a better perspective of themselves, you might need to put this, some of these identities on the back burner and, you know, and just really get to know the person because agree or disagree, this identity is it's really important for them. And if you just dismiss it out of hand, it's just, you're, you're not going to play a much of a role in their, in their life. And almost every single person I talk to that maybe used to have, let's just say an identity that maybe wasn't helpful and now no longer has that identity in anecdotally, it's a hundred percent, but I'll just leave, you know, let's just say the majority people I know, they got to that more healthy place when they met a gracious Christian that gave them space to process and work through things on their own. Right. Um, Yeah. And and I think in this final question that you've been responding to here. I think this is where there's probably a lot of people listening that would say, I don't know where I fit in this equation. For me, I don't, I've never felt confident or comfortable in somebody identifying like as I'm a gay Christian. I still, I still don't, 
but that doesn't mean that I don't I don't want to listen to them and don't want to understand what they mean. And and again, when when I say comfortable, does that theologically does that mean I think they're going to hell? No, I, I mean yeah, yeah. comfortable as a as a pastor myself, right? And so I think that yeah. there are there are ways that you know Paul talks about these things, but you can be uncomfortable, you can disagree, but you also can believe what is true for you is also true for them, right? And about yeah. salvation. And so I would just encourage people that, again, in my own journey with this in Minneapolis, it's common, it's it's frequent, you know, the, mm-hmm. the campus I'm a part of is right downtown in, in the thick of everything. But I think yeah. that it's the, the purpose of this and the reason why I wanted to chat with you again is to continue to have these conversations with yourself, if you're married, with your spouse, if you have friends that are talking about this, pastors, like let's have it be a conversation so that you don't get put in a situation where there are people to be loved that are asking questions, one of these 21 or others, to where Mm -hmm. your immediate response is going to what you've been fed from the political ideology or from your not thinking about this for five years, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm glad you mentioned the political ideology. I do think, and I, I feel like it's getting more and more, maybe it's just perception, but I do think that a lot of Christians, knowingly or unknowingly, are kind of absorbing um, from their political um, positions or political authority figures they look to or, or social media pundits or political pundits or whatever. I feel like they are getting their they're being shaped more than they realize they are by some of that polarization, you know? Um, that's where I just, I think flat out, we need to maybe turn off the news or turn down the news. Well, a question for you, like, and I know we're wrapping up here, um, yeah. but a question for you on that. As someone, I'm 26. I've never not known what it's like to have social media. I mean, I was I was 13, yeah. I think, when Facebook came out Crazy, or something yeah. like that. So, I mean, I was I was young enough to, when it was new, I was experiencing it. So, it's always... Politics has always been really at the forefront of young people's yeah. minds. You know, I, I'm, yeah. I remember we did a mock vote when I was in seventh grade for whether we'd vote for Obama or McCain. And I mean, we're doing a mock vote as seventh graders. We don't know anything, <laughs> you know? And so yeah, it's yeah. definitely been at the forefront. Do you feel like that, like in your life, I'm not trying to call you old, yeah. but I suppose I am by, by asking this question. <laughs> Has that shifted or do you, think, do you think it's always been that way, Boomer? Oh, old people are, they're addicted to social media too, man. Uh, the boomers, they don't know how to get off social media. It, it's, yeah, it's, it's not true. just a young person thing. It, it's, I, I, yeah. It's funny because even boomers, they're, they're used to an era where like when the phone rang, you answered it, right? <laughs> so I've been, this is so common. They'll, they'll, I'll, I'll be around boomers and they'll get a text and they'll go, oh, they're going to respond like right in front of me. I'm like, and, and, and obviously your generation does the same thing, but I'm like, you do the same. They're just like constantly just distracted by this. So yeah, I, I think it's I think it's a cross generational issue. Here is what where and I'm on social media. I, I just think that we need to be, we need to open our eyes. It is beyond dispute that social media and mainstream news outlets are incentivizing hatred. They make money off of getting you angry and keep clicking and scrolling and scrolling and clicking. It's been proven that. Anger and fear is what keeps people clicking and scrolling and scrolling and clicking and they get ad revenue and they are not that you are, you are not incentivized to love your neighbor, love your enemy. You are increasingly incentivized to hate the other. Who's the other? Somebody who belongs to the other side of the political aisle, somebody who holds to a different viewpoint. If after watching the news, you are not motivated to love your enemy and neighbor more 
then I would say that is disrupting your discipleship. You need to find other ways to be in. I think we should be informed. I think there's certain outlets that are good at that. Um, but I, I just think we are pawns in a grand scheme of, and I'm not like, I'm not, I'm not a, I don't have a tinfoil hat. I'm not a conspiracy. This is, this has been talked about, you know, even the documentary, like, like the, the social dilemma that I thought would change yeah. this whole thing. Just kind of, Wah, 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 wah. Just kind of people just kept on being. It's like you're being used, dude. Like you're a pawn in this greater machine and being used. Your your anger is being tapped into for somebody else to make a lot of money off of you. Right. So let's be vigilant about not letting um, certain things in society disrupt our discipleship. So, yeah, v- vigilant um, has been yeah. my my favorite word over the past year. Mm-hmm. And I was going to mention the social dilemma as well because it's such a great example of uh, how yeah. it how the engine works against you. But uh, your your mic is acting up again, which is is really a good time. Uh, our timer is is done. But just want to say thank you for. Uh, sitting down, you you have a podcast that you come out with, Theology in the Raw. Great conversations on that. If people can uh, want to hear more from you, as well as your new book coming out August first, just in a very short time. So I'm excited for the launch, and I'm sure we'll have another conversation soon. Who knows how long it'll be and what we'll be talking about? But uh, just thank you again for the time that you gave us, and for uh, all those who are listening to Talking Church today. And yeah, thank you, love. Appreciate it.